0: Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. He is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore God's and Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, first of all, thank you for this opportunity to be with you and to speak with you on a normal Sunday. It's a delight not to be here uh, for the sake of a funeral. Uh, I want you to know that I have been sustained by relationships that transcend both time and space, and I have so many fond memories of our time together. And while many things have changed at Grace and for me, my focus really remains unchanged. Nothing matters to me still to this day more than authentic discipleship, following Jesus faithfully today. So it will be no shock to you that I'm going to speak a little bit more about discipleship in the time I have with you this morning. I know that Grace has experienced some tremendous difficulties, some painful moments. But I believe that you still have an equally tremendous potential for the future. And the Lord has amazing work to do through you to accomplish in his name and for his sake. And so let us pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for that reading from Corinthians. For your compelling love for us in Christ for the tremendous gift of reconciliation that you have provided fully and completely in Christ, and for that ministry of reconciliation to which you have called us, we give you thanks, Lord, that you've connected us as a part of your church, and you've made us ambassadors for Christ. Help us this morning as we spend these times together to understand even more completely what it means to be in that ministry of reconciliation, of healing, of true ambassadors for you. Send your Holy Spirit now, Lord, to anoint our hearts and our minds. Open us to be responsive to your perfect will for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I really have two readings that I want to share with you uh, this morning. Both are from the book of Acts. And instead of talking to you about the process of discipleship today, I want to talk to you about the context of discipleship. What's the nature of the Christian community that nurtures people as faithful followers of Jesus and equips them to reach others with the gospel and provides for their growth and development as disciples? The first reading is from Acts chapter 2. This is following Pentecost and Peter's bold preaching, explaining who Jesus is, why he came, and what he had done for them. It's after 3,000 people have come to faith in Jesus. It's about the formation of the community that was able to sustain that growth in the church and sustain the development of those first disciples. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, if you'd like to follow along in your pew Bible. It says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And everyone was filled with awe and many signs and miraculous uh Wonders were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now that's the first reading. But there's a second reading. The second reading is from Acts chapter 6, and the truth is, it did not take very long in this Christian community for conflicts to arise. And you know, actually, it is not the lack of conflict that constitutes Christian community. You know, the truth is, wherever you have sinners gathered together, you're going to have conflict, right? It's inescapable. The question is, how do we handle conflict? That's what makes us Christian and unique from the rest of the world. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because the widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, Nicholas of Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the disciples who prayed and laid their hands on them so that the word of God spread. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. I put these two together because I want you to think with me about this very important understanding. How we minister to one another within our community of faith has a direct effect on how we do ministry in the larger community. How we treat one another in the church directly affects how we treat those people beyond the church. Our witness within the church is our witness to the world about the difference Jesus is making in our lives. You can't separate these two. They're not two different things. In Christ, they are one and the same thing. And folks, the world is watching us. The world is watching. So how are we doing? You know, unfortunately, what I see is that often there's a great divide rather than consistency in our behaviors. I'm reminded of the story I heard some time ago about a small Kentucky town in which there were two churches and one whiskey distillery. And the members of the church always complained that the whiskey distillery had given their little community such a bad reputation, and they had encouraged the owner of the whiskey distillery to move it to the far edge of town, and he absolutely refused. He was also an atheist, and uh, didn't get along very well with the rest of the Christian folks in the community. And and so the uh, members of the two churches decided to take measures into their own hands. And so they decided to have a prayer meeting and pray for God to act and get this whiskey distillery owner to move his distillery outside of town. And so they came together and prayed. And while they were praying, there was a huge thunderstorm and uh, As you might imagine, lightning struck the whiskey distillery and burned it to the ground. Well, you can imagine that the marquees of both churches the next day uh, had the same title, The Power of Prayer. Uh, And it wasn't long before the whiskey distillery owner had contacted his insurance company, and the insurance company said, you know, I'm sorry, but um, your policy excludes acts of God, and this is considered an act of God, so uh, there's no reimbursement for your whiskey distillery, upon which the owner of the distillery sued both churches (laughs) for conspiring with God to destroy his (laughs) distillery. And the members of both other churches said, well, that's terrible. We never did any such thing. And the trial judge who was dealing with this case said, I find this case very perplexing. He said, we have a situation where the plaintiff, an atheist, is professing his belief in the power of God and prayer. And the defendants, the church members, are denying the power of prayer. You see, see, we love the sensational until it affects our lives or our lifestyle, until it causes us to compromise some sense of our security in life, or until it has implications for our finances. Today, people throughout our churches crave an experience. We want spiritual excitement and spectacular entertainments. Some pastors have said if you wow them, they'll stay, but if they get a little bored, they're gone. Personal experience and feelings have become the measure or the standard for the evaluation of true Christian faith. The community gathers together to create one mountaintop experience after another with no valleys in between. And that doesn't reflect life, does it? A friend of mine once said, it's a lot like a baby's digestive system. An insatiable appetite at one end and a total lack of responsibility at the other end. (laughs) We want the excitement, but not the relationship. We want the excitement, but not the relationship. And believers we become very fickle. You know, if you can't find it in one place, you just find it in another. They stay for the experience, but leave before the situation requires the conviction of faith. You know, sometimes I think it's true that people are not searching for Jesus, but the path of least resistance. They want the easy way. We want to enjoy the sensational and hear preaching and teaching that never challenges us. Enthusiasm is up, but commitment is down. Excited audiences are growing while disciples are decreasing. They come for the show, but refuse to grow. Some people are calling themselves Christians, and in fact, I think more people are calling themselves Christians, but they don't want their faith to cramp their lifestyle. Consumerism still abounds in the smorgasbord of perspectives and ministries to meet every felt need. And in many ways, we are heeding the inner call to follow ourselves rather than the call of Jesus who says, come and follow me. Following the path of least resistance makes us like a meandering stream. And the people of God then never learn what Christ's disciples learned. Perseverance and persistence. You see, but that's not the nature of the church. We read that's described for us in the book of Acts, is it? The disciples knew that following Jesus was never the easy way, but it was the only life-giving path. These disciples had been through many struggles as they followed Jesus. They were the first community of believers. They knew what was necessary to live in community with Christ. And following Pentecost, Jesus turned over to those he had trained the leadership for his entire church. And they were ready. Look at those ingredients. There's seven quick ingredients that I want to point out in that first reading from Acts chapter 2. First of all, as the disciples devoted themselves to the teaching of Jesus, so now in the church, the church devoted itself to the teaching of the apostles. Secondly, as the disciples shared fellowship with Jesus and one another, they led the church to do the same thing. And the fellowship focused on sharing meals together and praying together. Among this community of faith, they expected Jesus to act, and he did in powerful and amazing ways. Fourth, the Christian community cared for one another, they loved one another. What does Jesus say to his disciples? The world will know you are my disciples. Why? Because of the love you have for one another. They loved one another so much they were willing to give up their own possessions as a way of caring for one another. They shared everything, it says. Every care, every concern, every joy, every sorrow, they shared together. That was the nature of the church. And I've got news for you. They didn't do it once a week. Look at that text. How often did they come together? Daily. Every day they were together. Every day. We have so compartmentalized our lives and the life of the church that we believe if you just show up once a week, that's all it takes. And often in our culture, we're lucky if people come once a week. Often it's once a month. Once a month. How can the world look in on this kind of inconsistency and see the nature of the kind and quality of love that we are to have for one another if you only show up once a month you're not going to know what's going on in the lives of the rest of the body of Christ around you it's impossible but that's the kind of love the church in the book of Acts had for one another that's how they supported one another that's how they shared their faith in Jesus and their love Six, their love and commitment spread from worship to their homes. So they didn't just leave it at the church. They didn't leave it at the temple. They took it home with them. They manifested their love and the experience of Christ as they loved, for one, another, loved one another outside of the temple walls. And their community was marked with joy and sincerity, it says, in their hearts. And finally, the last point is, as the... Writer Luke makes it in Acts. The world was watching. The world was watching how they lived out this faith in Christ as they cared for one another. And by doing so, they captivated the interest of lots of other people. Can you imagine people looking in and seeing so much love, so much commitment, so much joy in the hearts of people, they say, we got to go check this out. We want to be a part of that. These people find something so fulfilling in Christ Look at how it has changed their lives. That's what the world is waiting to see and to experience. And when they do, we look at the results. People just kept coming and coming and coming. Every day, people were being added, it says, to those who believed. Their community drew people to Christ. Folks, we have to recapture that. We have to recapture that. We can't just talk about people going off and doing their own thing as disciples of Jesus and think that what we do as a community doesn't really make any difference. Nothing could be further from the truth. The disciples had experienced that kind of love and followed Christ. Christianity is not just a statement of faith or a body of knowledge or an experience. It's not a matter of being a member of an organization or an institution. It's more than theologies and liturgies, investments and strategies and structures and constitution. Folks, it's about one thing. It is about one person. It is about Jesus Christ. It is about following Christ, believing in Christ, serving others in the name of Christ. How can we be that community? How can we be that community that lives in Christ? Well, as you can imagine, Luther's preaching on this text reminds us, again, of the exclusive claims of Christ. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. They knew that, and they understood that, and they lived that. And if anyone desires to seek another way, they make a liar of Christ, Luther writes. Here, Luther says, all men must confess their incapacity and inability to do good. Should one imagine that he's able to do any of this on his own, he does no less than make Christ a liar. He said, once we come to Christ and the foundation of faith is laid within us, then we are to grow in the knowledge of God, in the will of God, and to be filled with spiritual wisdom, pleasing God, walking worthy, bearing fruit in every good work. Luther said, how does the church do that? The church preaches law and gospel. The full measure of the word of God, the church teaches both law and gospel. And then what follows when people hear that word and respond to it and come to faith in Jesus and follow Jesus is the treatment of our neighbor. Christ's love comes then through us. And by the way, your neighbor is not someone else, first of all, outside of these walls. Your neighbor is the person sitting next to you. This morning, And if they don't see it here among us, they're not going to understand it beyond these walls. Luther says, with Christ as the root and the sap, that is all good, and he has grafted us onto such a rich and fruitful vine. Therefore, such fruits must come forth. They will do so naturally. You see, the disciples were entrusted with the job of leading the church following Pentecost. And they knew that Jesus wasn't out there offering them sensational experiences or material abundance or a new set of laws. He didn't offer them a superior theology or an innovative organization or a more integrated institution, a less complex worldview and a more pleasing way. Jesus offered his disciples only one thing. It's what he offers you today. Himself. Jesus offers you him. Because he is the gospel. When he says, come and follow me, that invitation is for you and for me. He is the singular object of our faith. He is eternal life. There's no life apart from him. He is all there is. In him, the whole world holds together. That's the content of our faith. That's the source of our salvation. The one who claims to be and is the way, the truth, and the life. By following Jesus, we grow in faith, are involved in ministry, offering care and consolation to our neighbor. Following Jesus is what transforms our life. It is following Jesus that becomes our witness. It is in following Jesus that we lead others to hear both law and gospel, believe in him, come to faith, and respond obediently to that same invitation. This is how we are truly mission-driven in the North American Lutheran Church to fulfill this great commission by making disciples of all nations. The gospel we proclaim is indeed completely Christ-centered. And the faithful transmission of that message through word and sacrament ministry is our legacy and our heritage that has been passed on to us, not simply for us to embrace, but to share boldly. You see, we are in this not to point to ourselves, but must remember constantly that our focus is Christ in our preaching, our teaching, in all that we do. And we are called to remember that in Christ, when we have Christ, when we believe in Christ, we have it all. There's nothing else that we're short of. There's no other shortage in our lives when we are in Christ. And so I've got to ask, if that's true, then why do we live as such impoverished people? Why do we live as those who are still longing for something else, something more, jealous of what we see others have out there in the world or what the secular culture can offer us? Instead of living, we are people who already have a great abundance, the greatest abundance the world has ever known. In God's grace, we live as those who are victims of scarcity as if we don't have enough, as though we've been shortchanged, that somehow God owes us more, or that the culture owes us more, or the world owes us more. And so we get easily stuck in the place, and we keep saying to ourselves, you know, this has been a tough journey. We're still just a persecuted remnant. Isn't it awful? Instead of lives overflowing with thanksgiving, we live in fear. Instead of trusting, we live in doubt. Church, hear me in this. You and I cannot proclaim what we have not claimed ourselves in Christ. You've got to claim it first before you can proclaim it to the rest of the world. We must lay claim to the fact that we have it all in Christ. We're not those who are starving. We are those at the banquet, the feast, if you will. We are those who have abandoned the values of the world. We are those who have have resolved that we can't be a part of a church body that compromises the gospel for the sake of accommodating the world. That would only make us as spiritually malnourished as they are. Instead, we live as those whose only mission is to lead those who are spiritually starving to the only food, the bread of life, Jesus Christ. And now the truth is, every community of believers is bound to have problems and conflicts, including this one. The question is, how do we handle those problems? If you turn with me to that second reading from the book of Acts, chapter 6, I want to point out a couple things here uh, in this text. Notice there are two different groups. And I want to point out, there are always different groups in the church, aren't there? Always. There was in the beginning, there is now, and will be forever. Amen. Right? (laughs) Uh, Two different groups in the church here. Uh, And uh, just take a look at it for a moment. They have two different backgrounds. You know, here at Grace... There was once a time when we just talked about the differences being whether you're Swedish or Norwegian or Danish, right, or Finnish. Uh, you know, uh, uh, we, um, uh, we looked at differences simply in those terms. Well, this wasn't much different. People who come from different places have different perspectives, don't they? There are even some Germans here, aren't there? <laughs> Amazing. Who would have thought that such diverse groups could come together? Yeah. Um, But people who come together have different perspectives and they have different needs. They have different needs. And and here, the, the two groups come together and say, we've got a problem. There is an inequity here. There's an inequity. Someone has been slighted in the daily distribution of food. We've got this group of widows on one hand that aren't getting what they should rightfully be getting. And so I want to make the first point. If you look at this text, you have to understand that we have to learn to listen to each other. Because that's what they did. They listened to each other. You know, I was talking to one of our uh, folks uh, from now my new home congregation who uh, sent a group over to Joplin, Missouri after the uh, terrible uh, tornado there. And uh, he was busy delivering furniture and he went into this person's home and he said, you know, I delivered the furniture and this lady wanted to tell me her story. He said, I've got a truckload of furniture. He said, she was my first delivery. And he said, but she wanted to talk, to tell her story. And he said, suddenly the Holy Spirit spoke to me. The furniture was not as important as my giving her the time she needed to have someone hear her story. And he said, he said it was terrible. He said, I kept going like this to my watch, thinking, how many more deliveries do I have to do, and how long is that going to take? And he said, I finally had to put my hand over top of my watch and say, it doesn't matter. This is what God has called me to do. He has called me to listen to this woman's story. You know where that begins? Right here in our midst. Right here among us. We have to learn to listen to one another. That's so very important. You see, one of the pitfalls that we run into is that when people say, hey, there's been some inequity. You know the first thing we think? And I must confess, there have been moments when I've thought this. Here we go, we got another troublemaker in our midst. Another troublemaker. i got to sit here and listen to this. and uh, I know they just want to make trouble. the, The disciples could have said that, couldn't they? Here are people trying to stir up some problems in our midst. They didn't. They listened. They listened. They didn't say, you know, you folks are being selfish. The only thing we need to be concerned about is the rest of the mission out here to the rest of the world. You folks are being selfish. You're distracting us from our true mission. That's why I said to you what I said at the beginning. There is no difference between the internal mission and the external mission. In fact, if we don't do a good job internally, no one's going to pay much attention to us externally. And this is our witness as we come together. Our witness to the world begins here in this community. The second thing the church did was to mobilize people to address the issues. Now notice, please, that the Apostles didn't say, okay, forget prayer, forget the word of God, we're just going to go wait on tables. That's not what they said. They didn't say, okay, this is our new mission, we're just going to do this over here. No, they didn't do that either. But they did mobilize other people. They did empower other people to come up with a solution. And that's so very important. God has given great spiritual gifts across this church and across this community to take care of all kinds of needs. It does not depend on your pastor or your program staff or other pastors who are here. It does not depend just on the church council or the board of elders or deacons. God has blessed every one of you with spiritual gifts for the sake of building up and strengthening his body, the church. You all have those gifts the key is how do we bring them to bear on the stuff that's important for the church both internally and externally mobilize people to address the issues the apostles understood clearly they couldn't do it all and they could not afford to neglect the legitimate needs of others within the community they didn't sacrifice the mission in order to care for those needs in fact by raising these leaders the deacons they not only cared for the needs of people. Look at closely at what's going on here. They not only cared for the needs of these people, but they empowered those deacons to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do you know that? Who was the first martyr of the church? Stephen, one of the deacons that they had empowered to wait on tables. I had a very good friend that's done an exhaustive study of the beginning of deacons. And, uh, and he said, you know, people don't get stoned to death because they wait on tables. They get stoned to death because they proclaim the gospel boldly to the world, and that's what he was doing. So as they trained this group to wait on tables, laid hands on them, empowered them, their witness and empowerment blessed the whole church. And the church grew greatly. You see... The internal and external missional purposes of the church are one of the same. The love of Christ must be manifest in both directions, or it will be considered to have no integrity and counterfeit. They demonstrated love and care for those inside the church and thereby strengthened their capacity to love those beyond the church. Look at the verse Seven of that sixth chapter of Acts. So the word of God spread. So the word of God spread. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests. Here you have Jewish priests who are watching these Christians live in community. And they're saying, count me in. I want to be a part of that. Amazing. Discipleship, folks, can only exist and flourish in a community that nurtures those disciples. Caring for one another is an indispensable part of growing and making disciples. So very important. You can't say in Christ that some other life matters more, and is more important than the life right next to you. You can't. They are both of infinite value and worth in Christ. And we should treat them all just that way. When you have faith in Christ, when you are following Christ, you have everything you need to accomplish the will of God in your life. You know, what happens in churches so often is that we start comparing ourselves with other successful churches. We need to have what they have. We need to do it just like they do it. That's not what makes you authentic. What makes you authentic is knowing Christ following Christ, loving others in the name of Christ. That's the only thing that's authentically Christian. See. It's not your size or the scope of your ministry or the size of your building or your budget that matters. It is only one thing, your faith in Christ. And when you have that, you have everything necessary to accomplish the mission of Christ. At the death of our son, I mourned, and Christy mourned, what he would never experience, this, the sense of loss about the fact that he would never get married, never be a dad, never know what it's like to hold grandchildren in his arms. His whole life cut short. He would never have a career. He would never have college friends. We were so preoccupied with this sense of loss of what would never be. And then I had a good friend who delivered the gospel to me. And this is what he said. He said, John, when any person is in Christ, their life is complete every moment it's lived. When a person is in Christ, their life is already complete every moment it's lived. What he was saying to me is, John, you have to give up the values of the world and look at the values that we have in Christ. He reminded me that when we are in Christ, is there any other experience that surpasses knowing Christ? Is there any other knowledge that would make us wiser than the knowledge we have in Christ? Is there any other relationship that is more meaningful than our relationship with Christ? Is there any other work or purpose for life beyond Christ? He led me to understand that my son already had it all. And so do we. So do we. We already have it all in Christ, and so let us proclaim Him. Let us be those ambassadors. Let us be those re- seeking reconciliation in and among ourselves and with those that God seeks to reconcile out there in the world. Every day and in every ministry, we seek to do nothing more than give away all we have the love of Jesus. That's the only identity we seek. And so I encourage you to also listen to one another. Demonstrate that love and care for one another. Because the world will only seek Christ because of the love you have for one another. Your love for one another in Christ will enable you to make disciples, to grow disciples, and that will be the platform for your witness to the rest of the world. So may the Lord continue to bless and strengthen your ministry and grow you even more deeply in the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.